We're going to look at Exodus 11 and 12 this week and next week. This morning I'm going to read just the first verse of Exodus 11 and then I'm going to read Exodus 12, 29 through 42. Hear now the word of the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. In chapter 12, 29. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, and he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, and there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up! Go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you've said. Take your flocks and your herds as you've said, and be gone, and bless me also. Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. But they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. And the people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians." The people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. This is the word of the Lord. Many of you know that I spent a good portion of my adult life overseas, mostly in Asia, I recall there was one time I was on a bus, one of those long three or four hour bus rides that I would sometimes take from one city to another in an Asian country. And while we were on the road, a tire blew and the bus veered off the road and down into a a shallow ditch and wouldn't start up. And so we had to wait for someone to come and help. And after a good amount of time of waiting, as we all stood around and just watched, a little truck pulled up, came out. Spent about 30 minutes changing the tire. And then he got back in his truck and drove away, leaving us in the ditch with a bus that would not start. And I was mystified why, A, he hadn't helped us, and B, nobody was chasing him down to finish the job, but it was explained to me, no, 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 he only knows how to fix tires. We need to call somebody else to come and start the engine, and then somebody else to come tow us out, at which point my friends and I called a taxi. Uh, When you are in trouble, when you are deep in trouble, you don't need partial solutions, which is all we got. You don't need someone who can just change the tire and then leave you still stranded. And sometimes our view of the gospel is exactly that. 
It doesn't appreciate the scope, the fullness of the deliverance that God brings to us in Jesus Christ. Because when God delivers His people, He doesn't deliver them partway. He takes into account the whole scope of their trouble and delivers us all the way. And that's very important. Because if we don't understand that God has fully delivered us, then we begin to look around for something or someone else to supply what we believe is lacking. Sure, Jesus forgives me of my sins, but I need something else to get me out of this addiction or to get me living the way I know I need to be living. I need something else to provide the satisfaction that my heart craves. And, and in doing so, in looking for something else to finish the job, our hearts and our loyalties go astray. We see in Exodus, not just in the book of Exodus, but in the story here of the actual Exodus, we see the broad scope of the Gospel. The full deliverance that God gives to His people so that we can look to and trust in Him for everything that we need. We're going to see three different kinds of deliverance, three different levels of the deliverance of God in these verses here. The first is that God delivers His people from judgment. The past few chapters of Exodus have been building up to this moment we've seen in the past few weeks. Through nine plagues plus other miraculous signs of His power, God has shown how mighty He is warning Pharaoh and all of Egypt to obey his word or else face judgment. And after all the signs and all the buildup and all the plagues, the moment has come for the final judgment that God had warned about. And he tells Moses to tell the people this in, in Exodus 11, beginning in verse 4. Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there never has never been, nor ever will be again. This tenth plague, the killing of the firstborn, is not something that we should view just through the lens of a historical event. Oh, that's something that happened back then to Pharaoh and to Egypt and has no bearing on me. Instead, through Pharaoh and through Egypt, we see the serious cost of sin. We see that God's punishment of Egypt in this last plague shows us how God punishes all people for their sin. As we're warned in Romans 5, sin came into the world through one man, that being Adam. And death came through sin, so that death spread to all people, because all sinned. So let us be very clear. Hebrew and Egyptian alike, along with me and you, were under a sentence of judgment, a sentence of death for their sin. The story of Exodus is not the Egyptians are bad, the Hebrews are good. God punishes the bad people. God rescues and delivers the good people. That, that is moralistic karma that is not the heart of the gospel. And, and scary, scary enough, too often our expression of the Christian faith and of the gospel ends up boiling down to just that. God rewards the good people and God punishes the bad people, but that is not the gospel. We, we see that in an, in an interesting way, a, a TV show recently called The Good Place 
uh, begins with a group of people being told that they've just died and they're now in the good place. And as they come to learn about and explore the, the good place and, and hear about the bad place, they come to find out that, that your life is calculated at a point system. And if you help your neighbor pick up their trash, hey, you get plus five points. If you let your dog poop in the neighbor's yard and don't clean it up, minus 10 points. You know, if you, uh, if you open up an orphanage in a needy country, plus 1,000 points. If you post something rude and inappropriate on your social media, well, minus 30 points. It's all a system of points and scores. But as the, the show goes on, they come to learn that the, the system is set up so that nobody ever gets in the positive. You're always negative. In fact, most people are so deep in the negative, there's no chance whatsoever for them. And strikingly, that's, that's the most theologically correct thing about the show, is, is that we are all, good people, bad people alike, we are all under a sentence of judgment. If our lives were calculated and added up, we have all fallen short of the glory of God. We are all deep in the negative. It may seem at first that God is rewarding the Israelites and punishing the Egyptians, like in verse 7 of chapter 11. After announcing the plague, he says, But when that happens, not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Oh, God makes a distinction between the good people and the bad people. No. Because a closer reading shows us that the distinction is not based on Israel's worthiness. Even the, the firstborn of the slaves were also under a sentence of death we see in this passage. No, the distinction is not that Israel deserved to be saved by God. The distinction is rather that God made a choice, a gracious choice to save. Next week, we're going to look at the Passover again in chapter 12. We're going to see how God's people were delivered from judgment. They were delivered and their firstborn survived if and only if they sacrificed the Passover lamb and put its blood around their door. It wasn't the goodness of the Hebrews that distinguished them and saved them. It was the grace of God through the perfect sacrifice. And so before God delivers His people out of Egypt, He must deliver them from the greater danger Himself. Yes, God is the greatest danger. In Matthew 10, Jesus puts it this way. Do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear Him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. There is only one who holds the power to destroy a soul, and it is not the devil. The Lord alone is the one whose judgment we ought to fear. He is the greatest threat the greatest danger that anyone ever faces is the righteous judgment of God on sin. Hebrew and Egyptian alike. You, me, that public figure that you can't stand, that is morally repugnant, that wonderful sweet person in your neighborhood, we all alike face one great mortal danger, and that is that God righteously judges our sin. So in this way, the final plague and the deliverance of God's people points to and foretells the universal danger of God's judgment on sin. As Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. But it also points to 
the way that by grace people are spared. Romans 6.23 goes on to say that the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The Israelites were spared the judgment of God. They were delivered by judgment because of God's free gift. God announced to them and made for them a way of salvation if they would only receive it. And likewise for us in Christ, God has made a way for His people to be delivered from judgment. In Jesus, the stroke of God's judgment still falls. Judgment still happens. Just as the angel of judgment came through the streets of Hebrew and Egyptian alike, it went past each and every house. Judgment took place. God still punishes sin, even while He's saving His people. The way judgment happens is the death of His own firstborn son. As we'll look at more next week. In the death of Jesus, the firstborn, God's judgment falls, and yet His people are delivered. And so all who are under the blood of Christ, all who take refuge in Him, are delivered from that judgment because He dies in their place. This ought to make us a people humble and gracious. Because we cannot look at our neighbor, we cannot look at our spouse. We cannot look at our brother or sister. We cannot look at our enemy. We cannot look at the celebrities that are repugnant and offend us. We cannot look at anyone and think that we are inherently better than they are. That we somehow deserve the mercy and salvation of God. No, we are along with them side by side under the judgment of God. And only by grace are we spared. And if He is gracious to us, we pray and hope that He will be gracious also to them. So delivering His people from their sentence of judgment was a gracious and praiseworthy act of God. And that alone is enough to declare Him merciful and mighty. But it's just the beginning. His deliverance has only just begun because He does not just deliver His people from judgment, but we also see that God delivers His people from bondage. In chapter 12, verse 37, the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth. They're heading out of Egypt at this point. About 600,000 men plus women and children and mixed multitude going with them, very much livestock, flocks and herds. The time that the people of Israel had lived in Egypt as slaves was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land having rescued them from their greatest threat, which is His own judgment. God now addresses their practical and most serious problem, which is their slavery. Which, again, don't read this as just an irrelevant historical situation that has no bearing on you because you are not a slave, right? That was the mistaken assumption that some of Jesus' contemporaries made as they argued with Him one day. In John chapter 8, Jesus was speaking to some religious leaders and He said, You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And these religious people answered Him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So I say to you, you are not as free as you think you are. And if you will not take my word for it or the words of Jesus for it, perhaps you will take the words of Bob Dylan to heart. 
You may be a construction worker working on a home. Might be living in a mansion, might be living in a dome. You may own guns, you may even own tanks. You may be somebody's landlord, you may even own banks, but you're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil, it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Many of you who know of Bob Dylan might not know, he went through a phase in his music where he was writing gospel music. He had undergone an apparent conversion and claimed to be born again. And that was one of the songs he wrote to a generation that felt that it was living freely, in liberty, in pursuing whatever lifestyle they wanted. And he said, no, you're serving somebody. You're serving the devil. You're serving the Lord. You've got to serve somebody, even though... We think ourselves free. It, perhaps especially when we think ourselves free, we are acting as slaves to something or someone. We are enslaved to our desires, to our passions, to our cravings, to our appetites. We are slaves to cultural trends and to current events and to current values. We are enslaved to our fears about health or money or status. And only when we know the truth, only when we know Jesus Christ and what He has done, only then are we set free from these things. Only then do they lose their power over us when they fail to compel us to act in the way they want us to. The Lord delivered His people from their bondage in Egypt. But at the same time, He delivered them into something else. He didn't just deliver them out of Egypt and then just Go, be free. No, the message all along, as we've seen leading up to it from the very beginning, was not just, let my people go. There was another half of that command. It was, let my people go that they may serve me. That was the goal. To be freed from one type of slavery and brought into another kind of service. Pharaoh picks up on this. He's heard the message enough times that he gets it. In, verse, in chapter 12, verse 31, after the plague on the firstborn, he summons Moses and Aaron by night, and he says, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and herds and be gone. And bless me, please. Pharaoh recognized that they weren't just leaving serving Pharaoh, that they were entering into another kind of service, serving the Lord. God delivers us from serving sin, not with the goal that we would then serve ourselves and do whatever we want. That would be fruitless. That would still be slavery. God delivers us from serving sin so that we can now serve Him. Paul talks about this in Romans 6. He says, Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have now become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you've now become slaves of righteousness. For just as you once presented your members, the parts of your body, as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, now you present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. This, this is a part of the good news of the gospel. That the deliverance we have in Jesus doesn't just release us into an empty void. Into this trying to figure out who we are, or just being whatever we want to be. Being your own person, finding yourself. That's not gospel, that's still slavery. He doesn't save us so that we then have to figure out who we are. 
No, Jesus takes what has been, and this is what the word redeemed means when we talk about redemption. Redeeming something is buying back, getting back what you deserve, what is yours. Jesus takes what is rightfully his, what was stolen from him, you, his creation. He buys it back and returns it to its original purpose. You picture something that had a good purpose. I think of a time when... Um, Myself and several of my cousins, when we were very young, and we were, you know, we'd spend almost every Sunday at my grandmother's house, and she had this big cabinet filled with china, nice china that was like the Sunday china. And one day they were trying to set the table, and the gravy bowl was missing. And my cousins and I were off painting. You want to know what that gravy bowl was doing? It was cleaning off our paintbrushes. <gasps> okay, grandma was gracious. But she reclaimed what was rightfully hers and cleaned out and washed out the paint and got it looking like it was supposed to be and put it to its original purpose. And we had gravy with our roast beef every Sunday. It, you were created with a purpose, a design, a meaning. And what sin does is it says, no, 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 no. The purpose of your life is to satisfy yourself or to uphold some, some social vision or political vision out there. The purpose of your life is to serve this or that cause or that purpose or that meaning or that ideal. You are enslaved to that. And what Christ does is He says, I am going to free you from that slavery, but not just set you on the shelf or not throw you off into the void. I free you for a purpose, and it is to serve me. Because that's what you were made for. You were made to find joy in serving God. You were made to glorify Him. And Jesus saves you so that you can be what you were always meant to be. In Isaiah 43, speaking of, of the Israelites who in exile had been sent far away to the nations, God says, I will say to the north, give them up. And I'll say to the south, don't withhold them. Bring my sons from afar. Bring my daughters from the ends of the earth. Bring back everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. You were made for a reason. The reason you were created was to glorify God. And anything less than that will always forever be unfulfilling. In bondage to sin, you're not allowed to fulfill the purpose you were made for. But in Christ, you're delivered from that bondage and restored to the good task for which you were created. Sin is not freedom. Self-rule is not freedom. Being who and what God created you to be. That is true deliverance. True freedom. And that only comes in Jesus Christ. And it would all be a very good story if it ended there. If it was the Hebrews leaving slavery, they've been delivered from judgment, they're delivered from their bondage, and they're on their way to freedom. That's the happy Hollywood ending that we even see in every movie version of it. That's how it ends. It ends with them just going off. But there's one more level of the deliverance of God that we see in this story. He delivers from judgment. He delivers from bondage. But God also delivers His people from want. Look at chapter 11, verses 2 and 3. God tells Moses to speak in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. It's not a part of the story we often hear. 
We talked about this a few months ago at the burning bush when God told Moses this was going to happen. And now here it is, the unbelievable thing taking place. Before they left, the Hebrews are commanded to go door to door to their Egyptian neighbors and say, hey, you got any gold? This is like the world's greatest trick or treat. I mean, it's just, come on, silver, clothing, come on. And, and not only that, but the hearts of the Egyptians, God turns their heart and their wills to be disposed towards them so that they give the Israelites whatever they ask for. Crazy. Absolutely insane. Can you imagine being called upon to do that? Would you have the courage to go up and knock on the door and demand these things? But look in verse 3, God, the Lord, gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. God moved the will of the Egyptian people to want to give their riches to the Hebrews. They didn't have to steal it, argue for it, fight for it. And this is, I think, a vivid playing out of two wonderful psalms. First, Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Psalm 24 tells us that everything belongs to God. Every animal, every tree, every dollar, every mountain, it is His. He lets it hang out in your bank account or in your living room or over here and over there, but it is His. And if He directs a person who belongs to Him, the, ever, the world and everyone in it, if He moves in their heart to give something that is His to another person, it's going to happen. It's His to begin with. And then Psalm 23 tells us what that means for us. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. God promises to take care of His people and He has the power to do it. My shepherd who cares for me and looks after me is the one who possesses all the earth. God has power to make sure that His children have everything they need. And so the Israelites are not just escaping Egypt, they are emptying it of its wealth. Chapter 12 is described this way. The people of Israel, they did as Moses told them. They had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. I love that word, plundered. I talked about this last time we saw it. Who plunders? Victorious armies plunder. The Exodus was not just a flight of slaves leaving a country. It was a victory march of a conquering army carrying spoils of war. And so when you see the Hollywood version of them just carrying these little bags of their few scant possessions out of... No. You've got to picture them with carts loaded down with gold and silver. They are plundering the nation of Egypt. They went from slaves to riches in a moment. And they enter their new journey fully prepared and supplied for whatever God would call them to do. They don't have just enough for a short trip. They are overflowing. Because that's God's vision for His people. God's design for His people is that they may enjoy abundance in His creation. Now that's a much bigger topic than we can get to the bottom of right now because obviously many people do not experience that abundance. And God does desire and tell us to live with contentment regardless of what we have. But from the beginning of creation to the new heavens and new earth, 
The clear design and trajectory of God's people is always abundance. That we enjoy the wealth and generosity of God's good creation. That's our trajectory. Full satisfaction. And and as He leads His people out of Egypt, they get a foretaste of that. They get a little bit of that showing that God doesn't just plan to deliver us and then leave us to fend for ourselves, to leave us on our own. But as Psalm 23 goes on to describe, I shall not want, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Goodness and mercy are going to follow me all the days of my life and I'm going to dwell in the house of God forever. That's repeated imagery of abundance, of generous provision, of richness overflowing to His children. God delivers His people from want. I want that to sink in for a moment. Because you may be at a stage of life where you feel like you aren't enjoying any of that so-called abundance. And at such a stage, you are called to contentment, to patient endurance, and to recognition that the abundance that the world has is not the abundance that God has for you. You may be at a stage where you are enjoying many of God's good gifts in this world. And if that's where you are, you are called to a cautious thankfulness. A cautious thankfulness that you might not love the gift above the giver or might not mistake the foretaste for the reality that it points to. But to all His children, to all His people, recognize that Jesus is not just a suffering servant. Jesus is not just a refuge for the weary. He is those things. But He is also a victorious and generous conquering King who is able to supply your needs and who plans to bless you abundantly. That's the trajectory that we are on in ways that to bless you in ways that bank accounts and real estates can only faintly imitate to give us a, just a hint of what satisfaction and blessing will really look like when God richly blesses His people because the gospel does not end with forgiveness. The gospel does not end with forgiveness. The gospel does not end with freedom from sin. The gospel goes on to glorification. The gospel continues until those who were sinners are now seated royally with Christ, showing off the power and the goodness of God. Listen to how it's described in Ephesians 2. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. That's where our gospel accounts usually end. You've been forgiven. By grace you're saved. Amen. Hallelujah. Yes. But wait, there's more. It goes on. He is... He's made us alive and He's raised us up with Christ, seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Do you see what salvation leads to? Not just forgiveness, not just deliverance from judgment and bondage, but that the slaves become the royalty. Blessed beyond imagination in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, turn your hearts away from 
expectations and hungers for worldly things that will not satisfy when God has promised to deliver you from want. You will lack no good thing. And if you do lack it, you do not need it. You have in Christ not just blessings abundantly, but the promise of blessings eternally. What God gives us in Jesus Christ is not a series of small fixes. That's the summation here. Jesus is not a pick-me-up for when you're down. The gospel is not just a repair job, a quick patch for when things break. That is a shallow and ultimately unworthy view of God that we cannot worship. For too many of us, God becomes just the handyman that we call upon to show up when we need a little help. That is not who God is. That's not what salvation is. Such a view sells us short on the love of God. If He loves us as He says He does, then He does not leave us stranded in our despair and in our problems. We don't need to look elsewhere It's not like, well, I get my forgiveness here, but I get my satisfaction here, and I get my hope over here, and I get fulfillment and meaning and purpose over here. No. God delivers you from desire, want, bondage, all these things, all in Christ. We sang this morning about crying out to God from the depths of woe, a situation we find ourselves in because of our own sin and because of the effect of sin in the world. But in the gospel, deep answers deep. The depths of our woe are met by the depths of God's love. A love that He shows by sending His Son into the depths of our despair, into our sin, into our punishment, into the grave itself to fully deliver us. And not just get us up a little higher till we can climb our way out of our trouble, but to deliver us fully, totally. He is no Savior until we are fully delivered. And His love for us, the Father's love, is so deep that that deliverance does not stop until we are free of judgment, from bondage, and even from want. The reward of Christ, the Holy One, is given to His people. Why should I gain from His reward? I cannot give an answer except to say that this is what it looks like when God delivers His people. He has done it for you in Christ. Look nowhere else but to the full deliverance of God for you. Let us thank Him and sing of that deliverance. Our gracious God, You did not stop until the job was done. Our Savior Jesus Christ, we thank You that deliverance full and free is given to your people by grace. Why, we do not know. It's for your own good purposes, but you have done it. Turn our wandering, confused hearts that look elsewhere. Remind us again that all we need, you have given us in Christ. We thank you in his name.